Chapter 9, The Pursuit of Happiness The present chapter is perhaps a digression from the main theme of this essay, but its subject is such a chief aim of mankind that it seemed to merit discussion. Happiness has been the subject of a great deal of magnificent literature, but it has also been the subject of more trite aphorisms and of more bad philosophy than almost any other in the world. In venturing to discuss it, I am acutely conscious that I shall probably be joining the ranks of the bad philosophers. But it has seemed to me that since happiness is of such principal importance to man, I could hardly just be justified in evading the subject. My main, main theme is to be the pursuit of happiness, and this is different from happiness itself. A great part of human conduct is dictated by the motive, I am going to do so-and-so because I think it will make me happier. Though the prescription is all too often faulty. However that may be, the result is some course of action, and this will affect the external world, so that it becomes relevant to history. It is this that justifies its consideration here. Before coming to this side of the question, however, it will be well to begin by considering happiness itself. Much happiness comes quite unsought, and in examining their memories for the chief happy or unhappy incidents of their life, most people will find that the really important ones were concerned with entirely intimate matters of a personal kind, which had little relation to the conditions of the external world. Such occasions of happiness or unhappiness will presumably always be among the most important things in life. And since they are independent of the outer world, they will continue much the same in the future as in the past. There is undoubtedly a great difference among individuals in that some are naturally cheerful and others naturally melancholy. And as these are inherent characteristics, there is nothing to be done about them. But it is relevant to the present inquiry to ask which type has the greater survival value. To put the matter in its crudest form, is a naturally cheerful person likely to have a larger family than a melancholy one? For if so, then there would be a prospect of a slow increase of cheerfulness throughout the human race. I cannot answer this question at all, but I can see no reason to believe that cheerfulness should triumph rather than melancholy. There is also the very greatest difference among individuals in the pitch of their emotions, in that some are alternately intensely happy or miserable, while others take both emotions more placidly. Here again, the question arises whether there is survival value in intense emotions, and again, it is not easy to answer, though it may be noted that such emotions tend to go with an instability of character, which may often lead to forming bad judgments in other activities of life. 
and these bad judgments can hardly hardly help in survival. Among the inherent tendencies of people towards happiness or unhappiness, there is one characteristic, and a very sinister one, which cannot be overlooked. In any boys' school where discipline gets at all slack, it is practically universal for there to be bullying. This means that there are many of mankind who positively enjoy making their fellows miserable. It is by no means a majority, but it is certainly not a negligible minority. It is no use arguing that this is only a boyish failing and that in later life the bully will become a virtuous citizen. Conditions in this country give little scope for the exercise of brutality by adults, but this has not always been so, and it is not so in many parts of the world even now. It is the strong arm of the law, and not a change in his nature, that has restrained the bully. It is not easy to see anything that will tend to eliminate him, because his selfishness is a positive help to his survival in all conditions but those of the highest and most stable civilization. And even these conditions only check the expression of his propensities without destroying them. In thinking of the future happiness of mankind, it is a sobering thought that there will be quite a perceptible fraction of humanity that definitely gets satisfaction and so presumably happiness from making its fellows unhappy. Among the more external conditions of human life, a great deal of misery is directly due to physical pain, and if these sufferings can be removed, either by cure or by means of harmless opiates, it will clearly increase the sum of human happiness. Medical science has already accomplished much in this direction, and it holds promise of a great deal more, so that in this obvious sense man may confidently expect to be happier in the future. But there is another side of physical suffering that is not so easy to judge about, and that is hunger. If population pressure is to be a main feature of human history, there will usually be a marginal fraction of humanity living on the verge of starvation, which cannot be reckoned as a happy state. However, it is hard to be sure even about this, for the starvation is not usually continuous, but comes periodically in recurring famines. And there is room for happiness in the intervals. To those of us who have never experienced real hunger, this may seem unlikely. But it is reported by those who know the Eskimos well that they are the most cheerful people on earth. And this, though they are certainly the race living most continually on the verge of starvation. Insofar as happiness is regarded as an object of pursuit, there is the implication that it is, at least partly, within the control of the pursuer. 
Such happiness is a less deep emotion than those I have been considering, and its antithesis can hardly be described as melancholy or misery, but rather as discontent. Much discontent arises from noble motives, but it has regretfully to be admitted that the motive lying behind the widest range of discontent is mere envy, the most inamiable of human characteristics. But, whatever the motive, it certainly produces great unhappiness, and it is the kind that stimulates the sufferer into seeking a cure. Man is a very poor prescriber for his own troubles, and he usually sees his grievance, whether real or imaginary, as the only thing in the world that stands between him and a permanent state of perfect bliss. Of course, as soon as he has succeeded in removing the grievance, he at once finds another, and this again becomes the most important thing in the world, with eternal happiness once again just around the corner. The target of the pursuit will always evade the pursuer. It is not recognized by most people that happiness does not come from a state, but from a change of state. That is so, is il, that it is so is illustrated by the total failure of every writer to describe a satisfactory paradise, whether in heaven or on earth. The tedium of eternity has almost become a joke, and the descriptions of the earthly utopias are no better. Most of them fail to recognize that the human mind cannot hold any emotion for long at an even intensity, but that it always soon degenerates into something much more tepid. A few authors, of course, have recognized this. Thus, Samuel Butler describes the criticism of the Christian heaven by an Erwonian who points out how much better it would be if one always thought that one's wishes were going to be thwarted and then at the last moment they were fulfilled. Then there is the almost certainly mythical American preacher who told his congregation that heaven would not consist in the playing of harps, but would, like earth, be a center of busy activity. We can be fairly sure that no bears would have been allowed on the celestial stock exchange, but the preacher did recognize that it is a change of state and not a state that makes for happiness. But it is not simply a change of state that makes for happiness. There must be something unexpected about it. Butler's Erwonian would very soon have got bored by knowing that he was certain not to be really disappointed. Again, in some professions, there is an automatic annual increase of salary, but this change is apt to be mentally discounted long in advance. Contrast it with the real joy at receiving an unexpected promotion. A great proportion of mankind enjoy gambling. If their conditions are bad, this is easily understandable because the remote chance of betterment is worth taking. 
but very many people in secure and prosperous conditions also find it almost necessary to gamble, and this is because it provides just the element of uncertainty otherwise missing in their lives. That is essential for their happiness. The external conditions, then, that are most likely to produce happiness are benefits received at uncertain intervals, and to make the individual continuously conscious of his happiness, there must obviously be several such benefits during the course of his life. In the present economic conditions, the prescription for a great many people would all too often be 10% more pay for 10% less work, with the dose necessarily repeated at not infrequent intervals. This is to put the matter very crudely, but it does subscribe to the general human view on the antithesis between work and pleasure. The prescription is, of course, fantastically impossible of achievement over the course of the ages. Even in a single lifetime, the cumulative effect of compound interest would defeat it. And though the son could not expect to start where his father left off, yet he would expect to start above where his father had started, so that the law of compound interest, it is true, that it would be at a lower rate, would again come in for the succeeding generations. There is no chance of this sort of thing continuing over a thousand years, let alone a million years, unless there are intervening periods of disaster to give occasion for a new start. The really wonderful thing about the last century has been that exciting improvements of condition have been happening at frequent intervals for about six generations. And even so, it is not very evident that those living in the present conditions of enhanced prosperity are any happier than the people described by Dickens. A chief question from the point of view of this essay is whether there is any survival value in happiness. Are the natural, naturally happy people more likely to be the ancestors of future generations than are the rest? For if they are, then a greater number of the future race will tend to inherit this happy disposition. The answer is very doubtful, and it well may be negative. The reason lies in the fact that contentment is not a stimulus to action like discontent. It must, of course, be recognized that there is a good deal of what I may call stimulated discontent for many political leaders find it useful to stir up discontent among their adherents, even though they, these may really be of the contented type. Leaving aside this stimulated discontent, a man who has the spur of his own genuine discontent to drive him will struggle harder to achieve success than will the contented type. On the average, he will be more successful, but the set success will not content him, so that he will always be spurred on to further efforts. If this success is, as in the long run it will be, associated with his making a greater contribution to
later generations, it follows that the discontented type will increase in numbers at the expense of the contented type. This argument leads to the disappointing conclusion that future man will be more discontented than man of the present day. I do not want to press it strongly, but in the light of it, no matter what the future condition of life may be, there seems absolutely no reason to expect any notable increase in the sum of human happiness. In connection with the matter of human happiness, it is a very pertinent question to ask whether man really enjoys being civilized, for on the answer to some extent depends the stability of future civilization. In the past, there have been so many cases of the decay of civilizations that it is rather tempting to believe that the majority really find a state of barbarism more congenial. Thus, the civilization of the Mayas had already seriously decayed under the rule of the Aztecs long before it was destroyed by the Spaniards. Again, the Roman Empire was destroyed by the onslaught of the Germans in spite of the fact that it had been steadily and on the whole successfully civilizing many of them for two or three centuries before the collapse. They found the barbaric life more satisfying. To take a modern example, the Republic of Liberia was repeopled by Negroes returned to it from America. These had seen civilization, even if they may not themselves have gained much profit from it, but anyhow, they showed little wish to avoid the relapse. There are no doubt many causes that have led to such relapses into barbarism, but a chief one is the existence of the class of men I have called bullies. Such men are apt to be brave and self-confident, but selfish and concerned only with their personal interests, and above all indifferent to the sufferings of those around them. Such men, always ready to assume leadership, only interested in their own advantage, and indifferent to the fate of their fellows, are perfectly adapted instruments for destroying the delicate balance of civilization. Now though it is indisputable that many civilizations have relapsed into barbarism, each of them must after all have grown out of barbarism before it could relapse, so that instead of arguing that man has relapsed into barbarism on account of his dislike of civilization, one might argue with almost equal force that he has become civilized because he does not like barbarism. The best answer to the question, which of the two he prefers, can be given by examining the parallel of another human taste. Originally man was a hunter, and very many people still retain the trace of it if they find a spontaneous, almost instinctive joy in the chase, which they can get in no other, other way. About 10,000 years ago, there came the agricultural revolution. This was a totally new thing for man, and indeed for the whole animal kingdom, except for the independent discovery of it by a few insects. At first, it can have had no emotional appeal at all, but rather the reverse. The discoverers must have felt that 
They were doing a disagreeable and tedious job, and they only did it because it was so clearly advantageous. For a long time, the great majority would retain the emotions of the hunter and would only cultivate the soil under the impulsion of stark necessity. The practice of agriculture was an acquired character, and so it had to be acquired anew in each generation, and many must have revolted against the tedium and gone back to the more congenial practice of hunting. But there would be some whose nature was more tolerant of farming who would stay farmers, and those of their sons who inherited the taste would continue on the farm, while their brothers would drift back to hunting, so that there would be an unconscious selection towards agriculture. The new habit of life would gradually establish itself in some men's heredity, carrying with it an emotional appeal which might ultimately become as strong as had always been the appeal of hunting to the rest of the race. I do not know if biological principles could tell how long the creation of such an instinct would take, but there is no need to ask the question because we have the answer before us. There are a great many people now existing, that is, certainly after less than 10,000 years, who undoubtedly have the instinct for agriculture. These are the people who derive deep emotional satisfaction from gardening, even when they are in no way driven to it by economic necessity. Though Voltaire might be claimed as a typical product of the age of civilization, he really belongs to the age of agriculture, for he represents Candide in his disgust at the world around him as finding his ultimate satisfaction in the cultivation of his garden. The same sort of thing must be happening with the urban revolution. In China and the Levant, this goes back for several thousand years, and yet already the promotion of the taste for civilization from an acquired to an inherent human character must have begun. But for most of the world, this can hardly be so yet. After all, in Western Europe and America, it is hardly more than 30 generations since most of the ancestors of the present city dwellers were completely barbarous, and it is therefore not surprising that many of their descendants should regard civilization as a disagreeable necessity without emotional appeal. This explains why so many civilizations have been rather short-lived, but it also answers the question whether man really likes being civilized. There can be no doubt whatever of the advantage of being civilized in that it permits of larger populations, and these will prevail by their numbers against the smaller populations of a barbarism. Some of the citizens may not like being civilized at the present time, but that does not matter, for in due course their descendants will grow to like it emotionally and instinctively by the same process of unconscious selection from among them as has happened with agriculture. The process has already begun, and in the course of a few thousand years at most, 
a great fraction of mankind will feel spontaneously the emotional appeal of civilization. Let me follow this train of thought to its conclusion. If the agricultural revolution has followed hunting into our instincts, and if the urban revolution is going the same way, what about the scientific revolution, which has only just begun? The majority of mankind certainly have no taste for science. They regard the subject as a disagreeable necessity, only practiced for its obvious material advantages, and they relapse from it with enthusiasm towards the more instinctive tastes of the earlier revolutions. Nevertheless, the advantages of the new acquired character are evident, and there can be little doubt that it will follow the same course as the previous ones by the gradual selection of those who find the new system naturally congenial. In this way, I shall expect that before the end of 10,000 years, science will make an emotional appeal to the instincts of a majority of the human race, of the same intensity as the emotions they now derive from the arts of the city, from the garden, and from the chase. End of chapter 9